Hello, Pivoters. Welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU, your podcast designed to provide you with the inspiration, confidence, and strategies for making a pivot away from campus-based positions in education toward other opportunities. Hosts, Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Stuttert pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they are giving back and supporting others doing the same. Welcome back to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Stuttert. And we are here today with Gwen Aklu. Okay, Gwen, did I say your last name right? You did. You did. You did. Yes. So proud of myself. <laughs> um, Gwen, we are so excited to have you on um, the show. I, had, I have seen, especially in the expatriates group, but just in general, a lot of former res lifers um, thinking about what's next for them. And I see HR being mentioned quite a lot. So mm-hmm. when I saw you, I was like, yes, you will be great to have on the show. Folks will really enjoy and want to hear about your experiences. With that said, if you could get us started by just doing a real brief overview of sort of what was your educational background in campus-based positions? And then um, what are you doing now? So my background, I got my master's in student affairs and higher education. Once I was done, I ended up in res life. I was a res instructor for a mid-sized institution on the East Coast. I started with two buildings, 300 beds, 10 staff. At some point in the almost eight years I was there, I had five buildings, a thousand beds, and like almost 30 staff members. I was there from October of 2010 through June of 2018. And I loved what I did, but I also very much recognize I stayed too long. Partially, it was the comfort. Partially, it was the (laughs) expanding and decreasing of my radius size in terms of my job search once I ended up getting married. So it was a, a variety of things kept me there for that long. And... When I ultimately left, I actually, in my last year, I had a staff member who has turned into a friend being sassy with me because she was late to a meeting. And I said, you know, when you're in the real world and not on campus, you may not have a boss who is okay with the notification that you gave me. And her sassy remark was, I get that, Gwen, but can I point out that you've never actually worked in the real world? Because I went from, oh. yeah, I went from undergrad to grad school. Did you say that's a good example of what you shouldn't be saying? <laughs> we had that, that conversation, but that was, and that was when I, I was already aware that I was not coming back the next year. Um, and, you know, it was a tough pill to swallow. And so um, when I ended up leaving, I initially was like, you know what, maybe I am going to put my foot into working somewhere else, (laughs) get out of education just for a little bit. Maybe it'll make me a little bit more marketable because what I was seeing in my job searches was I was missing one key piece of supervision that was stopping me from being able to be considered for higher level roles, either both in res life and in student affairs. 
So I figure I'll get out, get some experience. And now that I'm out, I, I don't see myself going back. It's, there's always that possibility, but yeah. Isn't that funny that one of the it, things that we are conditioned to believe in higher education is the need to get supervisory skills, right? Like everybody that I've ever spoken with in higher ed, that's one of the things that they talk about. Like I needed supervision skills. Let me just tell you, now that I supervise, I have a department of about a hundred people. I want a job that I don't have to supervise anybody ever again. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I was going to say, Tom, it's that, it's like that catch 22. Like I used to experience this too. It's like, um, you can't apply to the next job until you have this experience but how are you supposed to get and and supposedly supervising student staff doesn't count and I think it does like when I see applicants that have supervised student staff I'm like yeah it's it's the same I mean who cares it's employees (laughs) but for whatever reason like there's a line in you know the student affairs world Quick follow-up to you, to what you shared, Gwen, um, before we sort of switch to more about how you got to where you're at now. Um, you said you felt like you stayed too long in your position. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, I think folks listening to would be thinking about that as far as like, how do I know when to go? So what makes you say that it was, it was too long? There was a year and, you know, it's, I, being, being in higher education, you kind of go into a time warp. So I can't, I can't pinpoint the exact year, but I know that there was a summer where I had to start giving myself pep talks in, especially in August, but in those first three months, not three months, maybe two months of the semester each year, like each semester, it was you got this. You like your job. I had to remind myself that I I liked my students. I liked my staff. Well, students could, depending on the year that went up and down, but I love my staff and I genuinely liked what I did, but there were points where I had to remind myself of that. And I could tell that my heart was not as invested as it had been in previous years. I, I find it interesting to hear folks' stories about, you know, when they, why they stayed long or why they didn't stay at all. And, you know, you see particularly, I think, and, and we're all members of the, the expats group on Facebook, right? And we see a lot of folks who have been in it for a year or two. And I wonder sometimes if that's generational, like, you know, that need to sort of like move to the next thing, do the next thing. You know, I, that was not something that I would have ever felt comfortable doing after just a year or two. And yeah. so I, I sort of get the the stay in it for a while. I sometimes wonder if I stayed in it just a little too long as well. I think I recognized, you know, I, I remember saying when I went into student affairs, like this is a short-term gig. And then 25 years later, I'm still in student affairs. Um, right. And so, you know, I certainly understand that, but, you know, um, when one of the things that I'm I'm really curious about is if I if I remember correctly, the position that you're in now is the position that you have you left higher ed to take. Is that correct? It's the second position. The second um, position. So okay. when I um, when I ultimately left, um, my contract was not renewed for a multitude of reasons, and so when I left and I started with a variety of different search engines. My mom actually was like, you've got to have a staffing agency somewhere. Reach out to them. At least get your name in the door. Start working. 
I had one placement at a bank where I was basically just doing data entry. And then when they ended my assignment, they actually placed me with a nonprofit working in HR. And even though I had none of the software experience that they wanted, I'm the kind of person I can pick stuff up fairly quickly. So it was just one of those things where I could came in and I got trained and they loved me. Um, I was brought on as a permanent employee in September of 2019. And then I actually was going to get a promotion within the first, before I had even hit a full year. And then my partner got this job and I had to put my notice in and we moved. And um, I was out of work for a couple of months, but I lucked out on a startup that I'm doing similar, but I'm more of a, I've got about 18 different hats on at any given point in the day. But right now I I work for a startup, a staffing agency, and I am the executive assistant, HR manager, employee relations, recruitment coordinator. At one point, I ran their company because they got married and then went on their honeymoon for a month. (laughs) And so it's been an adventure. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. One of the things, and, and Jamie talked about this in the first season, and I mentioned it on just about every consult that I do is is uh, sort of the concept of of what a startup is like versus what a sort of a, a, a growing or middle middle market type company versus an enterprise company. And and I think Jamie, you'll have to remind the 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 listeners of the book that that you got this from, but you know, going into a startup is literally like being dropped off onto a deserted island with with a butter knife. Um, that's what I tell people is like, and you got to figure yes. out how to get from one side to the other, and you you do have to wear a lot of hats. Uh, you know, I know when I Tom, first started. You uh, wait. I'm sorry to introduce, but Tom, for the listeners out there, first of all, it's not a book, which is fun. I figure you for that is a blog post, but also it was. <laughs> Not a butter knife. I know. I added the butter knife to it. (laughs) (laughs) I've added the butter knife to my consults. (laughs) So, okay. I don't know about the butter knife, everyone, but the metaphor is you got to pick which stage of a, of a company's development you want to join. Do you want to join when it's like a jungle and you have a machete and you have to cut, which maybe is a butter knife in Tom's world. I don't even know, maybe. Uh, and you have to cut down the path to kind of illustrate where you're going, which is obviously a lot of work, but is right for some people. Or do you want it to be a dirt road where someone's already done some of the work, but it's malleable and you can adjust it or it's a highway where, you know, the rules of the road and, and, and engagement and such is already developed. But so I use the butter knife as an example um, in the metaphor as, as you're not given a lot of tools um, to sort of go from one side of the island yeah. to the other. Um, okay. in a start, and in a startup, because, you know, when I first started, I was at a startup and I certainly understand, you know, sort, sort of not really knowing where, what you're going to have in your hands to, to sort of get from one side of the island to the other. So I definitely appreciate when sort of that, that concept of, of going into startup, wearing multiple hats and, and, and sort of figuring that out. I guess my question for you is, you know, sort of the advice that your mom gave you to sort of go to a staffing agency. What was that like other than ultimately you got placed into to a couple of things, but what was that initial sort of reaction like? Because that's, that's I think, a, a different avenue that, that many of our guests haven't really explored before. And I'm not sure we really heard before either. So I'd like to just sort of, you know, dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So I actually did a little bit of research on the the staffing agencies that were 
close to me because, you know, this was pre-pandemic where you had to go into an office in order to start that process. Um, and I ended up interviewing with one that did only office jobs, but it was like a variety of things. They placed me at some place for, it was like two days. And then I was a victim of nepotism and they decided that I wasn't fit for the position. They ended up hiring the CEO's like neighbor or something, which I'm okay with. And then I ended up, someone else had suggested Robert Half. Robert Half's a, a global entity when it comes to staffing agencies. And when I, I looked into it, they had not only multiple different um, teams, but they did both temporary direct um, temp to hire and direct hire. So for me, that was something where I was like, okay, I can go in and I can do this and at least it's money, but I can also continue to, to apply for an interview for these direct hire roles because as a millennial, I don't do well working temporarily. I, I don't like that anxiety that comes with it. So I had set an, an interview and the person I was supposed to ended up calling out sick. And so I had luckily been um, matched up with another recruiter whose partner works in higher ed. So when I was able to talk to him about what I was doing and show him my resume, he's like, yeah, I get this. My girlfriend does this. And so he was able to help me craft a couple of bullets. And he was able to really, really solidly pitch me to various placements. Um, I don't know if everyone is as lucky as I, I have been when it came to that, because there, were, there are some recruiters that have no understanding of what an RD or what a res instructor does. So it's really important that if they don't understand what that role is, that you are able to explain it in non-student affair terminology, essentially. Yeah, I always talk about the, the resume as really, you know, it's the transfer and transferability of skills are sort of the biggest pieces to what, mm -hmm. the, to what we have to sort of overcome as we, as we think about moving out of higher education into corporate or tech or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So as you're, you're thinking about or folks are thinking about their resume and resume development, um, or even preparing for interviews, or is there any sort of pivot-related advice that you have? I would say practice um, explaining your role as generically as possible, because I've found, and even with my, 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 my bosses, who are fantastic, they still don't quite understand what I did in, in student affairs, but being able to explain it gen generically, as weird as that sounds, it helps people understand a bit better what you did. That makes yeah. sense. And I think, too, um, Tom mentioned terminology and switching it. I just wanted to call out for folks listening that we have a pod uh, blog post that we did that is a fairly comprehensive list of terminology. It's a really good you know, starting point. Pivoting out of EDU will be right back after this quick message. Coaching Through It is a podcast hosted by myself, Laura Pasquini, and Julie Larson. We're two former higher education professionals who made the jump to corporate life and now are learning what professional coaching is all about. Coaching Through It will offer you 
and explain what coaching actually is and how it might help your pivot out of EDU and support your career transition. We'll be digging into coaching tools, techniques, and resources that we find useful. Not only will you get these tools, but you'll find out what's useful for you and where you're at in your career. We're both career coaches and support transitions and pivots, and we have a number of other coaches you might want to learn from as we feature them on interviews on the pod. And let's get real, we've been friends for over a decade, so you might just hear an episode or two of us coaching one another. And a bit of real talk of what it's like to be in the world of work and how transitions and pivots happen today. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, as we'll be coaching through it. And now, back to the show. So, Gwen, both for the current position you're in and also as you are um, sort of navigating those first jobs, you know, out of higher education. One of the things that I talk a lot about when I do consults is that in, in corporate, the resume gets you the interview as in, as opposed to sort of in higher ed, I always felt like the resume really was like 90% of what, what got <laughs> us the job. Um, where in corporate, it's like 0% of what gets you the job. It only gets you the interview. And so I'm curious, you know, you've submitted your resume, you've done that piece. What was the interview experience like as you were moving into these new roles? Interviewing for my first position with Robert Half, it was just, you know, they said, go be here. This is what the position is. Very generic. But when I was preparing for interviews in the second search, it was a bit more intense for me because I was not only not only learning a whole new geography and figuring out just the the, the simple fact of getting from my house to the location, but understanding how California, because that's where I am, California has its its own entity when it comes to um, human resources and, and employment laws. And so at least having a generic, this is what I'm going to be going into, I found was really important. And I also had a recruiter who interviewed me for a position um, who said, you are vastly undervaluating your time. That's not a word, but I, <laughs> I was not asking for enough salary. And so that was kind of the kick in the pants of, I got to make sure that I am asking not only for my worth, but also making sure that I'm not being priced out just because I'm not asking for enough. And that's, that's a great segue, because <laughs> I think uh, so the next thing we wanted to ask about, because uh, a lot of folks um, feel uncomfortable about negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, especially historically marginalized folks and women. And so it sounds like you had a bit of a learning experience there. And I'm curious if you can just share a little bit more um, about how you did. It sounds like you got that advice, which is great and valuable yeah. to make sure that you're negotiating. So how did you um, land at what salary to ask for and any other benefits? And how did you approach, approach the negotiation process? So for my first position, I didn't like, I was just very much as long as I'm making at least what Robert Half was paying me to, to do the role. I was a happy camper because of external things outside of money. I mean, I was working at a building that was three minutes from my house. So when approaching this search, I did know that I was probably going to end up gravitating towards the remote roles especially during the middle of the pandemic. Um, and so I took a look at to, as to, you know, my, pardon me, my ex, um, expenses and making sure that I could contribute what I could. Granted, I was not going to make on par with what my partner makes, but 
making sure that it's equal in other ways. Um, so I had landed on a salary that I was like, I'd be happy to get this. Anything more or less is kind of gravy or anything more is kind of gravy. But I actually had no intention of negotiating for my next role until I interacted with someone at my nonprofit role. She was coming in and I was onboarding her and she had actually done something that I had never considered doing. And that was to negotiate a higher rate of pay based off of not taking benefits and having that put into the offer letter that due to not taking benefits, she was going to get this much more when her benefits, when she was benefit eligible. And that for me was a really good kind of step in the door of negotiation. And that's what I, that's what I asked my current employers. I, they offered me the salary and I said, that sounds great. However, and they said that I'd be eligible for benefits in three months. I'm on my partner's benefits and it really cost-wise and it wasn't going to add anything to have us on both. So I said, if I commit to not having a and not taking benefits, can you know, is there a possibility of an increase? And they said yes. And they actually said, when you're eligible for benefits, your pay will increase to this much. Now, because of outside things, they actually doubled it, which was a great, like, not only showing myself that I can negotiate and ask those hard questions. But it helped solidify the fact that this was a good thing, that if I hadn't have asked for it and I had just taken the bare minimum, I may not have gotten the increase that I did when I hit that three-month mark. Gwen, I mean, at the end of the day, and Jamie and I have talked about this offline before too, is we expect people who apply for our roles to negotiate. There is an assumption that they're going to do that. Um, And so... I'm I'm actually on, when I'm surprised when somebody doesn't because I'm like oh well I I I got this person for the for the lower offer um, you know I we budget you know for mm-hmm. that and I I think a lot of candidates don't realize that 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 there's an expectation to do that and and I think that your story is really unique with the benefits piece I remember having a conversation with somebody uh, who used to work at USC and and now um, has has moved into private private sort of private consulting on diversity related issues. Um, she even negotiated for like new office furniture. And I remember thinking, I got to remember to do that because <laughs> I actually value what my office furniture and my office situation look like. So I think that that's, that's, that's a really important sort of aspect to it. I, I do want to pivot just a little bit, no pun intended. You know, I think you have the career path that a lot of folks are interested in, right? Mm-hmm. You went from residence life, which of course is a huge portion of student affairs. Uh, a lot of folks start in, in residence life. Jamie and I both started in residence life um, and you've moved into human resources, which there's an, there's an, there's an, a connection, right? There's an automatic sense of there's a similarity because in in student affairs, we're dealing with people and human resources. Ideally you're, you're dealing with people um, and humans in the title, right? So I'm curious, you know, how did you sell yourself to land the job? What were some of the things that you sort of pinpointed either in your resume or the interview that, that sort of we're, we're making that transferability of skills and that translation of skills. So I definitely hit on one of the things I love to do, which is why I kind of started when I was looking to leave the field. I loved recruitment. I'm an extroverted introvert. So I loved 
interview interviewing, whether it be students or professionals, it just drained, it just drained me completely. And so I would hit on that, whether it be participating in the planning. I ran it one year. I developed a new um for a couple of years. We did a December process that I was in charge of. I, I definitely hit on those, but I also would talk about how in in uh, residence life, it's it's important that at the end of the day, as much as you it, it sometimes it's hard to do, you are advocating to make sure that the department is it's hard to explain what's going through my head, but it's you have to advocate on behalf of the department. You have to balance that with your residents as well. So you have to it's it's that balancing act, which in HR it's it's a similar balancing act. It's just different different plates that are in the air. So I'm advocating, and at the end of the day, as much as I hate the memes that go around that HR is not your friend because HR is for the company, it is. But one of the things that I found that helped me in HR was the skills that I got from explaining policies and procedures to students is to be almost overly transparent as to why the policy is the way it is to maybe bring those levels of annoyance down a couple of notches. And I think that's actually probably (laughs) what best sold me to my current employer is that ability to be transparent and advocate for my, my staff. But also at the end of the day, I'm working for a startup and I am helping them grow. That's, that is amazing um, to, to point out to folks and super helpful for them to see sort of the parallel there. As we kind of close out our episode, what we're wondering is if you have any broad advice, um, things you didn't get to cover that you would like for folks to think about as they're doing the pivot, either things that you just didn't realize about the differences between campus-based positions and, and non-campus-based Um, Or just things that you want to share that um, might be useful nuggets for our listeners. Well, the one thing that I think was the weirdest experience was going to my first interview and realizing that it was an hour and that was all it was. (laughs) That's okay. Just because the interview was only an hour does not mean that it's a bad thing. But at the end of the day, if anyone listening is considering it, I... So I left in June of 2018. That next year, I went back to the, the campus because one of my former staff members was speaking. I was walking around and I was seeing people and I was seeing other staff members who had graduated as well. And I got stopped by one of the campus police officers. And he goes, you look great. And now, mind you, I had put on weight and I felt like I, I didn't think I had changed that much. And he goes, when you smile, I can tell you mean it now. Whereas when you were smiling before, there was something in there that made me wonder if you were okay. And when you have people who work with you who are asking you that stuff, sometimes they're seeing things that maybe you don't realize you are sharing. Yeah, that's really great advice. And I, especially as I have you know, met with so many folks who are looking to pivot or I've heard stories the sort of the weight of the world seems to be taken off their shoulders if they've had the opportunity to pivot and they've wanted to make that pivot, right? You know, we recognize that, that folks, there are folks in higher ed that love it, you know, and and I've shared my story before. I loved higher ed. I left because I didn't want to be a VP in higher education, but there is a, a weight of the world that sort of disappears. And, 
And I, I sometimes wonder in higher ed if, if, if that weight has become sort of insurmountable for us to overcome, and particularly in the pandemic as, as we're all living through it and, and campus professionals are, are trying to figure out how to navigate a pandemic that, that you know, seems to not want to end anytime soon. So, Gwen, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Your story is, is both uh, unique and refreshing. I love that you started with a staffing agency. I think that that's a really interesting way for us to, to, um, to talk about pivoting. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. feel like they've got to find that position and a staffing agency is a really unique way to do that. And so I really appreciate that. But I, again, also think that that the way in which you've pivoted into human resources is, is definitely a path, an example, whether it's with a butter knife or not, uh, <laughs> of how people uh, can do that. So really appreciate you joining us uh, today for our episode. For all the listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us for our Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Uh, if you have suggestions on future topics or suggestions on future guests, please email us at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com or visit our website at www.pivotingoutofedu.com. Thanks and good luck. Thank you for listening to Pivoting Out of EDU. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit pivotingoutofedu.com. If you're thinking about pursuing an opportunity outside of your campus-based position or know someone who is, visit our website for advice and resources and learn Jamie and Tom's private consultations offered to support you in your journey. If you think this podcast was awesome, please consider giving us a five-star rating. 